just want to um, give a quick uh, word, a quick uh, pointing out of something that um, if you were in here and we were uh, together uh, corporately confessing the things that we just confessed in that uh, corporate confession time, that corporate repentance time, the, the prayers that we read, uh, that's something in uh, a worship service known as uh, the liturgy of the service, the, the things that we are literally um, placing in the service to practice together, to do, to participate in together. And you may be weirded out by it. You may be going, man, we sound like a cult. We sound like, what are we doing? We're reading all these words on a screen together, and this makes me feel awkward, and I don't even understand half the words, and it's tough for me to get there and all that. But here's what I would just invite you into is that this whole worship service, the liturgy of this worship service, the, the things that we put in here, the things that Joseph labors each week to think about, what do we need, Lord? What are we, all of these things, Everything from the call to worship to the singing out to the confessing to the receiving of the word, all of it forms us. So here's what I would invite you into, into um, considering or pondering is that even if you don't like everything that's happening or that made me feel uncomfortable or I haven't been that quiet and silent in the last 10 years, um, it is forming us. It is reorienting our hearts. It is, it is teaching us a posture. It is shaping us even if we can't look at it and go, man, I felt great about it. That's how we tend to come to these things as we go, man, I went to this thing, I went to this concert, I went to this restaurant, I went to this party. How did I feel about me when I left? How did I feel about the interaction? And we're not, we, we want you to feel loved and welcomed here. We want all that. But here's what, what else we, we know is that even if we can't feel it or name it or point to it and go, man, that felt really good to do that. We also know that these things form us and shape us and humble us and, and also do this, they bind us together because here's what happens. When you are not alone in confessing your sin corporately, uh, your sin becomes way less special uh, and you become a part of a family instead of just this individual thing trying to follow Jesus that we together get to do this and be formed together. So it's my little, uh, little teaching on liturgy. Uh, there will be more of it. Um, but uh, I want to invite you into that instead of um, having you be a spectator. It's this participation um, invitation. So anyway, enough of that. Sermon time. How are you going to feel about the sermon? Uh, we are finishing up our sermon series that we've been doing for the last six weeks. Uh, today we've been doing a sermon series uh, called The Questions That God Asks. We've been looking at these six interactions in the Old Testament. There are more than six, but we picked six of them. Six interactions in the Old Testament where the Lord shows up to individuals to ask them very particular questions. He's got pointed questions for them. He's got leading questions for them. But ultimately, he's got loving questions for them. The Lord shows up and asks people questions. And what we've said every week is the Lord never asks questions to get information. He already knows the answer to his question. He is always asking questions to seek his people out, to be curious about them for them so that they would hear the question for them, not so that he can get information for himself. So final question of the series, and then next week we will start our fall series in the book of Nehemiah, which I'm really excited about, but today is, a, um, is another gut punch, uh, so, or it has been for me this week. So I hope you uh, have enjoyed this series and that you, you continue to lean in today. This comes from the book of Jonah, the last chapter in the book of Jonah, the prophet on the run, as he's known. We're actually going to start the reading of this uh, in the last, the last verse of chapter 3, and then we're going to read all 11 verses of chapter 4, um, but it's kind of a, it's a, it's a uh, curious narrative, so it reads pretty fast. So here we go. Jo- uh, Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. (laughs) Greatest ending to a story ever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, man, a lot of feelings about this. A lot of of tension here. So let me just recap the first three chapters of Jonah for you really briefly. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord, meaning he was God's mouthpiece to God's people. He would get words from the Lord to then go share with God's people. Jonah gets an assignment from the Lord to not just go speak to his own people, but to go speak to Ninevites halfway across the known world in Assyria. Newsflash, Ninevites were the enemies of God's people. Jonah, the Israelites, did not like the Assyrians. They did not like this evil people. So Jonah does not want to go on his assignment. He got a job call that the Lord was sending him on, and he did not like it. So he leaves. He actually flees in the opposite direction. He goes on the run. He flees to Tarshish, which if Nineveh is here, Tarshish is here. He's running in the opposite direction from the Lord's call in his life. He buys a boat, many people think. He purchases a boat. He goes down. He spends his life savings on a boat, most likely, He's in, the, he's in the boat, Lord sends a, temp, uh, a tempest to disrupt the waters. He gets uh, made aware that uh, the tempest is for him. The sailors throw him over water, a large fish, not a whale, maybe, we don't know. Large fish swallows Jonah, he's in the belly of the whale for three days. He has this beautiful moment of repentance in Jonah chapter two, a beautiful prayer, it's a beautiful song, it's, it's precious. The Lord spits him up, takes the whale, you know, one-way one way whale train, one-way large fish train back to the coast uh, in the right direction. And he spits Jonah up on, this, on the shore. Jonah walks to Nineveh, this uh, seemingly fresh man who's been, who's been uh, captured by the grace of God for him. He was a rebel who was running, and God saved him and didn't let him perish. And now he's walking into Nineveh to preach repentance to the Ninevites. He goes in, he speaks a three-word sermon to the Ninevites. And that's where we pick up the story. The Ninevites repent of their wickedness. They, are, they were an, uh, an evil people. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Jonah preaches repentance to them, and the people of Nineveh repent. Here's what just happened. Jonah, again, preaches perhaps the shortest sermon in history. Maybe I should learn a few things from him. And the whole city repents, meaning God's mission worked. At the end of chapter three, chapter three, verse 10, when God saw what they did, that's the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter three would be an incredible ending to the story. This is where all the movies end. We've seen this rebel prophet run away. We've seen God chase the rebel prophet down. We've seen the rebel prophet have a moment of spiritual awakening and clarity to God's grace and God's mercy in the belly of the fish. And then that prophet, who was a rebel prophet, obeys finally and goes and does his job. He preaches to his enemies, and it works. The whole city repents. This, he has reached the crescendo of his career. He just, he just led an entire city in revival. And then chapter 4 hits. The opening lines of chapter 4, get this, perhaps are the biggest surprise of the entire story of Jonah. Not the large fish for three days, okay? Not even the whole city repenting, 120,000 people repenting. This opening line of chapter four is the biggest shock of the entire story. Chapter three ends, whole city of Nineveh repents, and now listen to, that. like, if you were writing this script, like, this, this is where you land the plane. Like, this is, it worked. Jonah's gonna live happily ever after. This is awesome. He had this, uh, spiritual experience, and now he's on a spiritual high. Like, I can't believe what God did for me, and now my sermons are working. Like, look at the fruit of it. And then chapter four. Listen again to the opening line of chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. 
The first clause, that first sentence in Hebrew, in a literal translation is this. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. One translator that I read this week, one scholar uh, translated Jonah on his own and said that it's better described this way. This was absolutely disgusting to Jonah. That's what the author, that's what the narrator's trying to say. In fact, when it says on there, the literal, like this was an evil to Jonah, a great evil, that word for evil was used just a few verses before when the Lord is describing the evilness of Nineveh. This evil city who did child sacrifices, this evil city, rampant evil, abuses of power, injustice. It was an awful city. The Lord describes the Ninevites' actions as evil, and they were evil. That same Hebrew word is what Jonah uses to describe the Lord's actions. Lord, what you just did is on par with the evil of the Ninevites. Evilness of that car honking outside too. This is a great evil. It is disgusting to me. Now Jonah sees the Lord's mercy to these evil people and the Lord shows mercy to these former enemies of his and he thinks it's disgusting. He thinks it's evil. It abhors him. Jonah is so livid that the evil city of Nineveh has been shown mercy. Listen to what he says in verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. We looked at this a few weeks ago. This is seemingly a theme. The Lord, when we looked at Elijah, Elijah on the mountain, he gets suicidal as well with the Lord. He says, Lord, I don't even want to live anymore. Somehow the Lord's prophets seem to have these despairing suicidal moments. He is so angry, Jonah is so angry, so full of despair that he would rather die. Okay, now just pause for a second. Jonah is so angry he would rather die. Have you ever been that angry? Now I know we're in a room this big. I know that you, we have people in this room who've had suicidal thoughts. I know that we've had people who've been so angry they would rather die. But even if you haven't had suicidal thoughts, have you ever been so angry that you shocked yourself and scared yourself at what you were willing to do to get out of your anger? This is Jonah. He's wasting away, suicidally angry. This is, this is drive the car off the bridge. Like, you, you know, I, I, please tell me you know that I'm not alone in this. I'm so angry, I'm so depressed right now. Wouldn't it just be easier just to turn the wheel this way? Like, I just, I don't even know if it, this is, this is him at the peak of his cynicism, of his anger, of his wrath, of his, he is seething. We're gonna study his anger in a minute. But this is, this is the level of anger we're talking about. And I'm not saying, have you ever done exactly what Jonah's doing? Have you ever been angry that you can feel it? Have you ever been so angry that you are so sick of whatever situation you're living in that's making you angry that you would rather not be a part of your life anymore? And then we get the question from the Lord. And this is, what, this is the question of the Lord, the question that God asks for our sermon series. This is, this is where it begins. Verse four. And the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Like, how's your anger working for you, Jonah? Is it making you well? Is your anger helping you with your anger? Are you, are you doing well with how angry you are? Other translations say, is it right for you to be angry? And not just like right or wrong. It's more like, is, is, it, is it right for you? Is it good for you? Is your anger helping you? Let's pause first and ask this question. It's complicated. What is anger? Anger is the indignation and the outrage that we feel in response to something being threatened. Anger is almost always used to protect something, defend something, or destroy something. Anger is the indignation and the outrage that I have in response to something being threatened. And to take that one step further as we begin to understand anger rightly, I only respond to things that are being threatened and with anger if I love those things. So anger is the, is the natural, proper response. It's the, it's the logical response to something I love being threatened And my response to that is rooted in me caring about the thing that is threatened not being destroyed, not being attacked, not being wounded. So if you're a parent and someone comes and threatens the safety or security of your children, you get angry. You should get angry. It's natural to get angry because something you love is being threatened. 
And so our anger is this check engine light for us on our dashboard. This, our anger, our experiences of anger is always just at the surface. Anger is the fruit of something that we love being threatened. Anger always exposes the things that we love. We must be angry at the things that threaten to destroy the things that we love. Here's another way to say that. If something is threatening your children, if something is threatening your job, if something is threatening your health, and you don't get angry at it, then I would say you don't love those things very much. Because if they're being threatened, if something is seeking to destroy them, if something is seeking to, to harm them, and you don't respond with anger, you don't love them very much. We must be angry at the things that threaten to destroy the things that we love. True love always gets angry when there is a threat to the object of its love. It's natural, it's understandable that we would get angry when, my, when the, the things of my life that I love are being threatened. And so here's the connection we have to see at this first point. Anger is always rooted in love, which leads us to essentially the path that the Lord is leading Jonah onto in this discussion the question is not, hey, what kind of things do you get angry about? That's, that's a good first question. Here's the deeper question. What are the things that you love? What do you love? Where are your loves focused? Because if you tell me what you love, I can do the connection work and I can show you, well, if you love these things, here are probably all the other things that make you angry. If you want to understand your anger, you have to get to the root of what you love. And at any given moment of any given day, I am in love with something. I'm a creature of love. I'm a creature of desire. I'm a creature of affection. I'm in love with my peace. I'm in love with my comfort. I'm in love with my money. I'm in love with my identity. I'm in love with my freedom. I'm in love with my reputation. I'm in love with my family. But here's the thing. In connection with all of those loves, things can happen all day on any day that threaten the things that I love. And so at any moment of any day, guess what I'm capable of? Getting angry. possible that the problem with my anger, the problem with my wrath, is disordered loves. If I don't love the right things and anger is always rooted in love, then my anger will be like a wildfire because I will be constantly getting angry at things that are showing really the world and myself what I love. So if my loves are disordered, if I don't love things in the right order in my heart, if I don't have a rightly ordered affection system in my heart, then I will be prone to get angry at all the wrong things. But if my loves are rightly ordered, if I love well, if I love the things in their proper place, then my anger can be trusted because my anger is driven by the things that I love. So really what we have to get after and what we're going to see in Jonah, what the Lord is getting after in him is can we rearrange the things that you love? Because if we can rearrange the things that you love, then your anger will be rightly placed. Your anger will be growing out of a rightly ordered love. So what's Jonah in love with here? What is Jonah so in love with that is being threatened that we see his response of suicidal anger? Well, first, he's angry that enemies of his are being shown mercy. That's, that's what he's stating. I can't believe that you would show mercy to people that I hate. But his anger keeps going, and we're going to study this a little bit, but his anger keeps going, and what we begin to see is because anger is always rooted in love, the bottom of Jonah's love is really he's in love with something else. He's not just hating the fact that his enemies have been shown mercy. He's in love with something else. What's he in love with? The narrator's trying to show us what Jonah's in love with. He gives us clues in the text, in the opening lines of the chapter. Listen to this, and this is again, a, 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 an ancient Near East, a, a Hebrew narration uh, uh, a mechanic to, to try to show us something, to try to reveal to the reader something. Here's the trick that this narrator is using. It's get, we've talked about this a couple times. Repetition shows us the focus. Repetition shows us what the narrator wants us to see. So listen to this. In the opening lines of this chapter, verses one through three, nine times in those verses, nine times in those verses, the personal pronoun for I or my is used. Nine times. I, 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 me, 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 I, I, me. Jonah is thinking about one person. That's what we're dealing with at the beginning of chapter four. In every sentence, every action, this reluctant prophet is egocentric. 
He is thinking about one person. Jonah is in love with himself. It's been this way since chapter one. But here's what that means. Jonah loves for things to go his way. Jonah loves for his plans to work out. Jonah loves for nothing to disrupt how situations are supposed to go down and he gets to decide how they are supposed to go down. He loves for the people, this, this is why he gets mad about the Ninevites being shown mercy. It's, it's not just that his enemies were shown mercy, it's deeper than that. Jonah wants the people that he wants to get mercy to get mercy and the people that he wants to get wrath to get wrath. Jonah wants for his life to go the way that he wants it to go. And what he's angry about is that God didn't have the same agenda for his life and his mission that he did. So the thing that Jonah loves is his life going the way that he wants it to go. And that's what's being threatened in the beginning of chapter four. It's a God who doesn't always do what he wants him to do. And so Jonah gets angry because the thing that he loves the way that his life should be going, the way that he wants his life to be going, the way that he thinks God should be making his life be going, that's being threatened. And the showing mercy to the Ninevites is just the tip of that iceberg. What are you doing, God? That's not what I want you to be doing. You're not the kind of God that I want you to be if you're gonna be showing mercy to the Ninevites. But then it gets, and we're gonna look at this, it keeps going. Because he's not just mad about the Ninevites, he gets mad about a plant here in a little bit. That God's not doing what, God, what he thinks God should be doing. God's agenda for Jonah's life is different than Jonah's agenda for his life. So let me ask this follow-up question to the question of God coming to ask us, coming to ask Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Another way of asking this question in the context of Jonah's story is this. How do you fare when Jesus' agenda for your life is different than your agenda for your life? And I know that's meta, like what's Jesus' agenda for my life? Here's how we can know how we feel about that. Let's take this out of the meta and into like, the really practical, how do you fare when Jesus' agenda for your day is different than your agenda for your day? Because you may be sitting here thinking like, I'm not an angry person. And I would say, you don't have kids yet. But here's, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. But, but, but you, you, may, you may not be like self-reflective and going, well, I don't really think I'm an angry person but here's what I would, I would invite you to think about. How do you do when your agenda or your plans for your day are disrupted? When something that you wish would happen when your plans for your day or your week or even your season have not gone the way that you want them to go? How do you do when Jesus' agenda for your day is different than your agenda for your day? And here's what's scary about that. No one may look at you and think that you're angry, but you know when plans are disrupted, you know when things don't go the way that you want them to go, you know how you feel in, in here. You know what that's bringing up in you. I can't stand it when that doesn't happen that way. I can't stand it when people don't do the things that I need them to do. I can't believe that my job hasn't gone the way that I wanted it to go today. Why didn't that person call me back? Why didn't I get invited to that thing? Why did that person cancel on me? Why are my kids acting this way? Why does the dog act this way? Like it can be any, any moment of any day. What do you do when your plan for your day, your agenda for your day is disrupted? Jesus in Mark chapter one, Mark is a gospel that moves really, really fast. So by the end of chapter one, he's already like been born, he's come and he's started his public ministry. He's already healing thousands of people. The crowds already know who he is. So we're not even in the end of Mark chapter one yet. In Mark chapter one, uh, Jesus gets up early to go away to be in solitude with the Lord and there's this huge crowd that has been following him around. And he gets up and his disciples are looking for him they can't find him, and they finally find him, and Peter, the, you know, the, the spokesman, comes and he goes, Jesus, where you been? He goes, everybody's looking for you. And this is Jesus' response. Like, here in Peter's uh, words, an assumption, an expectation that Jesus would, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Don't you want to be found by all these people? Everybody's been worried sick about you. Where have you been? We need you to come back over here because everybody's looking for you. And Jesus in light of all of Peter's expectation and agenda for him, this is what Jesus says. He goes, let's go to the next town. There's more people there that I need to speak to. Like he, does, he doesn't even pick up the fact that Peter's going, hey bro, there's thousands of people who need healing and need your help and need your teaching and need your ministry, need your mercy. And Jesus goes, yeah, we're not doing that. We're gonna go to the next town. He goes, for this purpose I have come. 
So how do you do when Jesus goes to the next town on you? How do you do when you go, Jesus, all these people are, Jesus, I have these desires. Jesus, I have these expectations. Jesus, I wish that my family was going this way. I wish that my life was going this way. I wish that, I wish that my day would go this way. And Jesus goes, yeah, we're going to the next town. Can you relate to Jonah here? When the marriage you signed up for isn't the marriage you're in, are you angry at the God who has a different agenda for you than you do? When the job you took was supposed to go a certain way and it didn't, are you angry at the one who orders the universe at the fact that he didn't order it according to your agenda? How about the move to Nashville that was supposed to satisfy you and finally make you feel like you're a part of something and give you purpose and community and it hasn't happened yet? Or how about the attempts that you've made to heal certain broken relationships that you're trying to, what you thought was doing God's work, what you thought was following Jesus and trying to enter emotional and relational health and you've put in work and you've had conversations and you've prayed and you've thought about it and they still slap you in the face? Are you angry at the Jesus who has a different agenda for your life than you do? So if we keep digging on this, and here's here's what I would say, this initial question, do you do well to be angry? How's that working for you? Is your anger at Jesus, is that helping you? Is it it healing you? And here's what I want to see if if we kind of keep digging here on this, do you do well to be angry? I want to look at this. What, What does being angry do to us? Jonah has, sadly, uh, we, feel, we should feel some compassion and empathy for him that we get to study the destructive pattern of anger by studying his life when really, you know, it could have been any of us. But because anger is so intricately tied to my loves and my agendas, that means that the effects of anger go way down. It affects my loves and my agendas. So let's see how this self-righteous anger is affecting Jonah. I want to see the effect that his seething anger at the Lord is having on him as like an existential person. How's it, let's answer the question, do you, does he do well to be angry? Is it helping him? Is it healing him? The first thing we see that his anger is doing to him is this. We see the addictive cycle of anger. Look with me again at verse five. We're told right before verse five, Jonah's angry. We've established that. Jonah's angry. And then verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Okay, this struck me in reading this passage over and over again this week, trying to study Jonah's actions and why is he, what's he doing? Okay, angry Jonah, we've established He is angry that the Lord showed mercy to the Ninevites. He wanted to see Sodom and Gomorrah like fire and brimstone rain down on Nineveh, but it didn't happen. He's already established that, and he's not happy about it. But angry Jonah goes outside the city to set up camp to sit on a hillside and watch what will happen to the city. But we were just told Jonah already knew what would happen to the city. He already knew that God was going to show mercy to the city, and he's already spared the city because of his mercy. So let's break this down. Jonah knows that when he goes outside the city to set up camp on the hillside to watch what would happen to the city, Jonah knows it's not gonna go down the way that he wants it to go down. Jonah knows when he goes outside to set up camp and watch and see if fire and brimstone is gonna rain down on Nineveh, he knows it's not going to happen, but he goes anyway. Is it possible that when we're self-righteously angry, we're seething in this destructive anger, that one of the evidences of that for our life is that we look for ways to stay angry. When you're angry with your spouse, do you intentionally look for ways to keep feeding your self-justified monster of your anger at them? Like lay traps for them that they would have to walk into to go, see? Of, Of course that's how you would respond. And I love not just being angry at you, I love being able to stay angry at you. Have you ever searched social media for someone who's harmed you, someone that you feel really self-justified in being angry at? Have you ever searched social media? Maybe you don't search social media. Have you ever searched the gossip trail? Have you ever like asked about someone hoping that someone who harmed you or has wounded you is still miserable? You can see their life and you can go, still doing the same, yep. I feel great about staying angry at them. 
Is it possible that you and I love being angry that we're addicted to it? Because it lets us feel superior to the people that we're angry at. And so, like Jonah, we look for ways to stay angry. Like, I know God's going to save the city. I'm going to go outside the city. I'm going to set up a camp. I'm going to set up a, a booth so I can watch God not destroy this city. So I can stay angry at him. So first, anger is addictive. Addictive cycle of anger. But look at how the next thing, when Jonah is seething in his anger, look at how fickle and fragile he is as a person. Like as a, as a human being. Ontologically. Look at how he is as a being. How, how, like we're studying just how he's doing. Do you do well to be angry? How's that working for you? Let's see how he's doing. Jonah goes out of the city and it's hot. He's in the Middle East. He's looking for some shade. Look at verse six through nine. Now the Lord God appointed, this might be helpful to throw up there because it's uh, four verses. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Yea, Jonah. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Okay, I know that we're like, Jonah's a prophet, and we're studying the Bible, and like his life is a metaphor, and all this kind of stuff. But just look at Jonah the man in these three verses. Do you see how tremendously fickle and fragile this man's existence is? His self-righteous anger leads to a tremendously fickle and fragile existence. Jonah gets suicidally mad over the death of a plant. Not the death of a relative, not a major breakup, not harm done to a family, not injustice in the city. Jonah gets suicidally angry over the death of a plant. A plant for which God then responds to him and goes, you you can't be serious, Jonah. Like that plant hasn't been alive for 24 hours. It was here yesterday, it's gone, it's, it's gone today, and you, you, want, you want to kill yourself over a plant? Do you see how fragile Jonah's emotions are, how fickle his stability is, that he, his whole life could be derailed over the death of a plant? Now, 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 we're experts, right? We've all been to counseling. We know that Jonah's anger is not actually at the plant, We know it's rooted in something way deeper. We know he's not actually suicidally angry over a plant. Here's what I'm trying to say, though. But he thinks he is. That's how he's acting. That's what he's saying. We know it's about something way deeper. It's about his loves. It's about his ego. It's about all the things. God's God's agenda is different than his. But his emotions are so fickle and his existence is so fragile that he is willing to talk about killing himself after a plant dies. Is it possible that if your day is marked by massive swings of emotions and fragile existence, you may be one of the reasons for that, may be the fruit of your own self-righteous anger? This usually gets expressed to others in our extreme language. My wife has witnessed me using extreme language about myself or about our kids it's all a waste. Nothing ever works. I'm never going to try that again. People always do this kind of stuff. Like this, this, like this massive extremities of the way that we talk about our existence or about people in our world. This is how Jonah's talking. That plant just died. I'm going to kill myself. It's like, whoa, whoa, Jonah. Jonah, we're talking about, we're talking about a plant, dude. And all of this his destructive addiction to his anger so he can stay feeling self-righteous and his fickle existence as a man is captured brilliantly. Again, I, I wish that we could all read it in, in Hebrew. I can't read it all in Hebrew, but I can study people who have. But here's, here's, the, here's the, the brilliance of the storyteller of Jonah. It's a, it's a masterful piece of literature. When we're told here 
that the scorching east wind is beating down on his head and the sun is beating down on him and he is burning up under this plant. We're told that. This, this is the storyteller doing things on a, on a couple different levels to try to tell the reader something. When it says that he is miserably hot, the Hebrew word to be angry is the same Hebrew word to be hot. So here's what's happening. God is saying this, Jonah, we need to talk about your anger. Do you do well to be angry? Okay, you want to be angry. You're self-righteously angry. You have an agenda for me. Can I show you how miserable it is to be that angry? I want to let your body experience what's going on in your heart. You're burning with anger. Now let your head and your shoulders feel that anger. He's burning up under this destroyed plant, and here's what the Lord is saying. You are so miserable on the inside, Jonah. It's such a miserable existence. I want you to feel how miserable it is. I want your body to be as miserable on the outside as you are on the inside. The two are intertwined. Your anger, Jonah, is destroying you from the inside out. You're addicted to it. You have a fragile existence. Aren't you tired of being this hot, Jonah? That's what he's saying. And oh, by the way, Jonah, I'm not talking about your temperature. Aren't you, aren't you so tired of being this hot that the little bit of shade I gave you from that heat, it said you were exceedingly glad for that, Jonah? What if your soul could be that glad? <laughs> like, what if you didn't have to be this angry all the time? So we have here this miserable prophet, Jonah, burning in self-righteous anger at the Lord who doesn't do things his way or do things that he wants him to do, burning in anger at the Lord for showing compassion to his enemies. But now I want to see this story as we close from, from a different perspective. We're invited to see from like the narrator's point of view. We, we're allowed to see it from two different points of view. I want to see not just what we've looked at, what Jonah's anger is doing to Jonah. I want to see what the Jonah's anger, 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 what his anger does. I want to see what I want to see what Jonah's anger does to the Lord. I want to see how the Lord moves towards Jonah. So let's see how he moves towards Jonah, and maybe we can see how he moves towards us in our anger. Okay, please don't miss the fact this is this is part of what we're invited into seeing is how the Lord is moving towards him. Please don't miss the fact that the story of Jonah going to Nineveh to preach repentance to the enemies, who were awful people, and they repent. The story of Jonah could have ended beautifully at the end of chapter three. The story could have been over. And, and we would have been none the wiser. We would have gone, what a great biblical story. Reluctant prophet, spiritual experience, repents, preaches repentance, and all lived happily ever after. The people of Nineveh have come to repentance. The case is closed. The mission is accomplished. This is victory for God and his plan for Jonah. So why do we have chapter four? Because the story's not over. Because God cared too much about Jonah. And here's what I want you to see. Jonah's anger at the Lord is what moves the Lord to action. It's what moves the Lord to move close to Jonah. God knew that if he left Jonah sitting on the hillside watching Nineveh to see if it would be destroyed, if he left Jonah there, then Jonah would be a miserable man for the rest of his life. Jonah's anger doesn't start in chapter four. Jonah was an angry man when the Lord called him in chapter one. His anger is what plays out over the course of the book. Like he's a reluctant prophet who hates the call from God to go and preach to the Ninevites, so he runs. And what plays out over the course of the book is the pursuit of God in coming after his angry servant, Jonah. Think about this. If you know the story at all, chapter one, the Lord calls Jonah to go to Nineveh in verse one, and by verse three, he's already out to, to Tarshish to run away. The Lord could have said, fine, go, Jonah. I don't need you. I can send some prophet who's not gonna run away from me. But the Lord is who sends the tempest to the sea. The Lord is who sends the, the large fish to swallow him up. The Lord is who has the fish drop him off on the shore. And the Lord is who comes to Jonah at the, at the end of chapter 3 to meet with him. The Lord could have sent anyone to Nineveh that would have celebrated their repentance, but he didn't. The Lord sent Jonah because the Lord was coming after Jonah. 
this, this, is, this, is, this is profound. This, this is startling that the Lord would give this much attention to a man that is this angry. It's what leads to a pointed question that we read in chapter four. It's what leads to this very particular pursuit in chapter four. And here's, here's what I would, I would invite you into seeing. Is it possible that the entire book of Jonah was written for this moment right here under the withering plant. Like the God, the God that called Jonah at the beginning of chapter one, chapter one, verse one, he calls him to go to Nineveh and Jonah, and Jonah darts and the Lord's going, yeah, this whole story is not about the Ninevites repenting. This whole story is about you, Jonah. I'm coming after you, Jonah. The Lord coming after him this way to have a conversation with him This was the same God that was willing to send sailors and a large fish and have a man travel halfway across the known world to have one conversation with him under a plant. Is it possible that the God of the Bible went to these lengths to simply get Jonah to see what he could have never seen had he stayed in Israel? Certainly what he couldn't have seen if he had gone to Tarshish and stayed there. The Lord was discontent to let Jonah stay in his anger. The Lord was not, the Lord was unwilling to let Jonah stay that way. He actually wanted to take Jonah into a deeper experience of himself, so he set this whole thing up to have one conversation under a plant. This particular pursuit of the Lord who's orchestrating the whole thing. Could he do that for you? Could he be orchestrating your whole life where all of the seemingly happenstance things are, are taking place, all that they're doing is working together from the Lord's perspective to a point where you are finally able to hear a question from the Lord under a plant. And I'm not trying to make this morning more epic than it may be. I'm not trying to say this morning if you would just listen, the Lord set it all up for you to be here, but maybe. And if not this morning, I know this is the kind of God he is. This is the kind of particular God that he is. Some of y'all maybe have seen it in and of itself on Hulu, yes? No one's seen in and of itself? Yes, <laughs> the film people down here, of course. Man, I can't, well, I can't, never mind. It was a beautiful illustration. It's not gonna work. Just gotta go watch it. Never mind. We'll talk about it later, okay? So good, right? You wanna talk about it right now? Okay, good. I just wrote it in the margins, like in and of itself, example, but not gonna do it. Um, That the Lord would be this intentional with people that are this angry, I want you to imagine the Lord doing that for you too. But as you read the story of Jonah, as we lean into the story of Jonah, if you think what he did for Jonah was particular and intentional, if you think, wow, I can't believe a God that would orchestrate all of this, chapter one, verse one, and the rebel prophet in buying boats to sail across the world and a fish to come and grab him and sailors and traveling and all that for one conversation, if you think that's particular, if you think that's intentional, if you think that took some providence, if you think that took some orchestrating, wait until you hear what this God did for the world. Jonah states this Hebraic credo in verse two about Yahweh, about the God of Israel. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's an ancient Hebraic Hebrew credo, a statement, a theology about God. It first appeared in Exodus chapter 34 with Moses on Mount Sinai. This is like the declaration of who God is. That sentiment about God, about Yahweh, is the most often repeated doctrine of God in the entire Old Testament. It gets repeated dozens of times. This this is how God wants to be known. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah could not have said a more orthodox or more true statement about Yahweh. That's who he knew God to be. Modernity, the postmodern era, wants to eliminate the anger of God and replace it exclusively with the love of God. But here's what we would see and what we know about anger. If you take away the anger of God, you don't have the love of God. 
that modern spirituality has actually limited and constrained the love of God by taking away his anger. Because anger is always rooted in love. So if God never has any anger, then he actually has no love. Because you have to be angry at the things that threaten to destroy the things that you love. So if you have no anger in your life, I would look at you and say, then you have no love in your life. And so how did God use his anger? What are we told about God's anger? Jonah just told us the most true statement about the God of the Bible that's ever been written. It's the most repeated phrase in the whole Bible about the nature and the character of who God is. It says God has a slow anger, a thoughtful anger, an anger that burns deep, but not an anger that is impulsive or reactionary and fragile. Here's how the Lord's anger is different than ours. The Lord doesn't intentionally stay addicted to his anger like we do. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But out of God's deep, steadfast love, which we're told here is true about him, out of his deep, steadfast love, guess what got produced out of that? An anger. And the anger was directed at the thing that threatened to destroy what God loved. So what is God angry at? God is angry at sin. Sin, the great destroyer of the thing that God loves most deeply. God hates the thing that threatens the thing he loves most. And because God is love and because God is a great lover, God has an anger that matches his love, an anger that is rooted in and and, and fueled by and is the fruit of his infinite love. So if he has an infinite love for his people, if he has an infinite love for the objects of his affection, he also has an infinite anger at the thing that threatens to destroy the thing that he loves. So if God hates sin and God has an anger at sin, here's where we start to have some tension it also means that he will have an anger at me because sin lives in me. He has a love for me but an anger at me because the thing that he loves me is also participating with the thing that destroys the things that he loves, which is sin. So this tension, what do we do with the tension of God loving me but having also an anger at me? What does the Lord do with that tension? What does the Lord do with the tension of his anger produced by love? Listen to what, there's plenty of passages we could look at. But listen to what Isaiah 59 says about this tension. How did the Lord handle this tension of his deep love which produced his deep anger? What did the Lord do with this tension? Isaiah 59, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. That's the Lord's uh, diagnosis of the world and sin in the world, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. Okay, so the, Lord, the Lord's analysis of the state of the world, there's no righteousness and there's no justice in the world and it displeased the Lord. He's angry at it. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm bought him salvation. Okay, so God sees that the world is being destroyed by sin and injustice and unrighteousness. The Lord sees it and it displeases him. And then he sees there's no one to intercede for the ones that I love. Because if I'm going to come and destroy sin, I also have to destroy the ones that I love. So he could have used his anger to decimate the perpetrators of sin. But did you hear what he did instead? Did you hear how the Lord relieved his tension There was no one to intercede, so his own arm, meaning his own self, made it right. How did he do that? How and when did God's own arm bring about salvation and solve the tension? Cliffhanger. We're told in this passage, this is so beautiful. We're told in this passage multiple times that Jonah was angry enough to die. Yeah, I'm angry. Angry enough to die. And it was a suicidal anger that was so selfish and so egocentric. But here's what, here's what that is priming the pump for. Here's what that's whetting the appetite for. Is one day there would come one greater than Jonah, a prophet greater than Jonah, named Jesus, 
who would also be angry enough to die. The only difference between Jesus and Jonah, though, would be that Jesus' love isn't fueled by his ego and his self-centeredness. Jesus' anger was fueled by his love for you. And Jesus' anger led him to die for you. His love-drenched anger went so deep for you that he was angry enough to die for you. Then his own arm bought him salvation. That's how the Lord handled the tension of his love-drenched anger. In the person in the death of Jesus, God bore all the anger that he had himself. He spent all his righteous wrath on himself and he interceded for the ones that he loved so that they wouldn't have to bear the wrath. He destroyed himself instead of destroying us. This is what Jonah says about him. You relent from disaster. But here's what what Jonah didn't know. One day he wouldn't relent from his disaster and he would bring his disaster on himself for our sake. This is how God used his anger to save the thing that he loved. He died for them. He interceded for them. He sacrificed for them. And this is the love of God for rebels. This is what God does with our anger. This is how he meets us in our anger. It can melt our hearts. It can heal our anger. And here's how it can heal our anger. It's not that you won't ever get angry anymore. It's that this this beholding the mercy of God, beholding what he's done for us in the person of Jesus, beholding how he decided in his slow anger to handle the tension of his love and his wrath, that reality can melt our hearts. And when it melts our hearts, it can reorder our loves. And rightly ordered loves will have righteous anger. Where we too will be a people that are not never angry, but be a people that are slow to anger and angry at the right things. This love of God melted Jonah, and this love of God can melt us too. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we need you. Melt our hearts, uh, reorder our loves, uh, help us to see that you're the greater Jonah, who was also angry enough to die but for all the right reasons. I pray this morning in our uh, closing worship that we would have um, moments of stillness, moments of pause to see you orchestrating our life uh, to come and meet us under the tree, to come and be with us, to help us to know ourselves more, but also, Jesus, to help us know you more. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.